last night, uh, we were thrilled by uh, Dr. Artavanis just to open up the Word of God and to show us uh, the doctrine of justification specifically focused in on uh, grace alone. And we thought it would be completely wrong to end our conference on anything other than the glory of God alone. And so with that, would you please welcome Dr. Artavanis again. Well, that was a tremendous time in worship, wasn't it? And um, so thankful for songs that reflect uh, God's glory and His praise. I'm very, very grateful for that, and very thankful for music uh, to that end. I think that book by uh, that was highlighted by Keith and Kristen Getty would probably be really good. I haven't read that yet, but I heard him speak on that when he came to do a concert at our church and we had a little pastor's luncheon for worship pastors and the things he said there were very, very, very profound. So it's a joy to be able to worship with you and are you okay for one more session? Um, you know, you guys have, uh, you've been here all day and so this is, uh, this is a full, full day and uh, you have Andrew Curry tomorrow at the church here, and so we're thankful for that. I must say, just listening to those two men this morning was a real joy to my heart. Both of those messages were powerful, weren't they? And uh, in some ways, it's amazing, isn't it, that all these things kind of work together, don't they? From what I preached on, then what Andrew preached on, then what Steve preached on. I'm so thankful, and I, I should say it's a real joy. It's you know, when you graduate from the master's seminary, obviously it's not the only seminary. God's using other places, but you really feel a, a, a kinship with the guys and uh, a commonality of doctrinal truth. In fact, a guy walked up to me, um, I just forget, I've been traveling and speaking. I think this is my 10th time in a week. And he said, Scott, why is there so much confusion doctrinally with denominations and so forth? I said, well, actually, um, there's a lot of unity out of the scripture. And I find a commonality of what the word is revealed. And when you're taught and trained to study the Bible, I find a great unity amongst us across uh, both the United States and around the, lore, around the world, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Well, we've been diving into the five solas of the Reformation, and we come to the, the final sola, and uh, it is titled Soli Deo Gloria. I sometimes just think we think all of them are solas, and they are, but one of them was solus, right, Christus, and this one is soli, S-O-L-I, probably because of the grammar there, glory to God alone, and maybe it's just a fitting way to, to finish the conference, and I do so by a question to you. What is the glory of God? There's many things that can come up in your mind, but when you think of that phrase, that statement on God's glory, what is the glory of God? Some have said, if you were to read some of those books, that soli deo gloria is the glue 
that holds all the other solas together in place. I think that's fair. It is, another said, the logical implication of the other four solas. In fact, one even called it the lifeblood of the solas. But again, I'm going to ask you, what is the glory of God? A writer such as John Piper said this about God's glory. He said, the vindication of God's glory is the goal of our salvation. He also said that God's glory is the goal of all things. He said God's glory is the unifying theme of history. God's glory, Piper said, is the source and sum of all full and lasting joy. Indeed, those are strong words, but what exactly is the glory of God? And what is God's glory? I think at the outset again, we certainly understand it is a biblical theme. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he got done with that first doctrinal section at the end of chapter 3, and you know that one, to him, to God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. But to him, to God, be the glory. And many other places, Paul said it in Romans eleven thirty six when he said, from him and through him and to him are all things to him to God be the glory forever. But again, what is that? What is that glory? In fact, I think we could all maybe stand up and recite this verse in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the what? The glory of God. When you think about this theme, and certainly we're here and we're studying the solas, But I think it's been well said. Part of that is church history. But more than that, it is the scripture that puts forth God's glory. Scripture is what describes God's character and his worth. And what I'd like to do just for our final time together is frame our discussion around God's glory, around the story of scripture, the true story of scripture. And I want to do this by two questions. I want to ask and then answer, what is the glory of God? Okay, what is the glory of God? And then secondly, how does God manifest this glory? So what is the glory of God? And then how does he manifest this glory? And we'll see how it goes. You pray for me because I didn't make this on the subject of how you can glorify God, which is in the scripture. But I'm, I was more focused on what is the glory of God. And I, I must tell you, I've been studying this theme for years in some ways. It's one of those doctrines that has just, I don't know, amazed me. And I don't even know if I could fully communicate adequately, humanly speaking, what is the glory of God. But let's do our our best by looking at the scriptures revelation of the subject, okay? 
What is, first question, the glory of God? Obviously, we're dealing with a biblical theme. That word, glory, is found 194 times in the Old Testament. You, you know that it's a biblical word. It's found 161 times in the New Testament. Now, that word for glory in the Old Testament is the Hebrew term kavod. It would be the best way uh, to say it to you, kavod. And when you see that term kavod in the Old Testament, it conveys two main thoughts, okay? Just a little bit of platform here to begin. Number one, that word for glory means honor. It means excellent reputation, It's interesting that the word can be used of people to indicate a person of worth or a person of reputation. In other words, you're you're doing the word study on this. In fact, in the book of Genesis 31, Jacob's wealth was called his glory. In other words, it's his worth, it's his reputation. So his wealth was called his glory. Joseph in Genesis 45, his regal position in Egypt is called his glory or his kavod. Now, kavod is respect, it's dignity, it's reverence. It, It describes one who is honorable. The ideal is impressive, worthy of honor. And of course, when it is used of God, it speaks of the greatest honor and the greatest reputation of any name. In fact, in the scripture, he is called the king of glory, the king of kavod. And then as you come to the New Testament, God is the father of glory. But what is glory? His name is glorious. His name is awesome in Deuteronomy 28, 58. So there's that first ideal of the word. It speaks of honor or of excellent reputation. But secondly, that verb kavod in the Old Testament literally means, I don't know if you've heard this before, it means to be heavy. And sometimes it was literally heavy. In 1 Samuel 4.18, there was a guy named Eli, and he was fat. He was, he was heavy. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 14.26, Absalom's hair was heavy. You remember that? In Exodus 17.12, Moses was holding up his arms, or they were holding up his arms because his arms were heavy. So it means heavy, literally, but sometimes kavod conveyed the seriousness of a subject. A famine was said to be heavy or severe. Sin is to be heavy at times and severe. Isaiah, writing of the nation of Israel, it said of that nation, they were weighed down with iniquity. But most often, that term kavod is a description of God's character. When you think of glory, it is his essential nature is what it is. When you think of the character of God, when you think of his person, when you think of his essence, he is, it glorious is the word. 
It speaks, does glory or kavod, of his splendor. It speaks of the worth of his person. So here's my best ability to unpack a biblical definition for you. The glory of God is the infinite fullness of all of his attributes. That's what it is. It's the infinite fullness of all of his attributes or character or perfections. God's glory is the unveiling of his character, if you will, and his attributes. It is his character made manifest. This was made clear to me, unfortunately or beautifully, at my ordination. Oh, it was a good, what year was that? 1991 or 92. I was in the ordination process at Grace Community Church, and uh, I was so thankful for that, and I think it's changed over the years, but I grew up in the day that um, guys lived in fear of ordination. Like, you know, to stand before the elders' council, and you had to stand before three elders, and they'd grill you for an hour at one of the sessions. Then you had to come before another elder. And um, the word on the street was you would never pick Dr. MacArthur for your ordination, okay? And I thought, well, that's kind of ridiculous. I kind of grew up there. And um, I don't know. I played sports, so I was competitive. I'm like, well, why, why wouldn't you pick him? I mean, he would flunk some guys out of the process, and they didn't get the outline of Romans right six different times in six different ways. And they said, you might want to come back and try that again. So I, I think pastors would fly in and say, that process of ordination is absolutely ridiculous. That is too hard. Um, and there was big, fat notebooks you had to study. So I graduated from the seminary in 88, then became a pastor. And I spent two to three years of my life memorizing the Bible in essence in the morning, okay, with my wife. She would be my, 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 my flashcards for me. This is after seminary, but I, I picked John MacArthur to be on my council. Does that make sense? So he's one of the three guys, and they said I'd never pick him. They said, well, why, Scott? Because he will take those big fat notebooks that you've memorized, and he will push them aside, and he will dig until he finds your weakness, I was like, bring him on. You, you know what I mean? I just thought, you know, I want him, you know? So sure enough, two years later, I mean, people say, you're foolish to take him, but I was a point guard in college at basketball. I played at Masters, and I just, I don't know, I was probably foolish, but sure enough, we walked into the council. Do you, wait, why am I? T- no, this story will relate, okay? So I walked into the council. And sure enough, the first opening sentence out of his mouth, I'd say the other guy on the theology section got about 70 questions out that I answered. Then the practical theology guy got out about 50 questions. And then he just launched on me. He said, Scott, I'm going to understand that you already know all the notebook. I was like, ah, I just, in my mind, I was like, I just studied for this for years. He said, Scott, I'm going to press you behind the notebooks. I'm like, okay, great. And so I was doing great. He's asking me all the Bible questions. And then he came to this one. He said, Scott, what is the most, I'm trying to think the exact word. What is the most preeminent attribute of God? And, um, but I knew he had me at that point. But I, I didn't want to let on that he had me. 
So I decided to pause just one minute. And by the way, this is well into my hour. He's probably rifled out about 220 questions at me. So I would start going. He'd go, stop, stop, stop. I mean, he wasn't being mean. Stop, stop. Okay, I know, stop. Tell me the book of Romans. I give him about six different outlines. Stop, stop, stop. And he just kept pressing me to find a chink. So what is the most preeminent attribute? And I, 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 he got me. I didn't know the answer, but I didn't want to say I didn't know the answer. So I put my hand on my chin. Hmm. And he said, well, Scott, what is it? And I was trying to think, what is it? And I said, well, certainly it's the love of God. His love on the cross for, no, that's not it. He just stopped me. He wouldn't let me go. And then I, I, I went, um, uh, John, certainly that maybe the most preeminent attribute is um, the grace of God in saving and redeeming. Nope, stop. That's not it. And, and then I think he asked me one more, and I just, I, I, at this point, I didn't know the answer. And I tried one more final time. I said, it's forgiveness. And he goes, no, it's not forgiveness. I said, well, then enlighten me, sensei. You know, I don't know. Um, and he told me that it was, what? The glory of God. And I've never forgotten that because in my understanding of it, as I then since went and studied the scripture, it is the infinite fullness of all of his attributes. In other words, when you think of the glory of God, if it's possible to use this language, when you put them all together, all of his attributes, all of his perfections, and there's got to be a better word than this, the sum of who he is is glorious. But you can't say the word some because whatever he is, he is God in an infinite degree. But you put him together, if you will, and it's glory. And so this is one of the reasons why it's difficult to grasp this attribute, to grasp this perfection. Because you're beginning to describe, if I said love, you would define that for me on the cross. If I said forgiveness of sins, I could tell you that's the Greek word of phiime, which means to let go of something. If we talked about mercy, we talked about grace. But when you begin to talk about glory, you're talking about the character and the essence of God. He's glorious. So let me say it this way, that his glory is the weight and the worth of God's majestic character. God's glory is his reputation from the revelation of himself in Scripture and in nature and even in his grace extended to us. Now, you remember in Exodus 32, in fact, I'll turn you there as we begin. Look over in Exodus 32. And as you turn there... you're reminded of Israel's horrific rebellion in the sin of the golden calf. But as you move past that in Exodus 33, it says in 33 that the Lord said to Moses in 33.1, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But then he said, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. In other words, I'm going to put you into this land, but I can't go up. 
So Moses intercedes for the people. Look at 33 verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom will you send with me? Yet you've said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order that to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. And so he said, God, you've got to go with me. If, if you don't go, how would we even survive? And so look at God's response in 33, 14. Amazing. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Verse 15, he said, if your presence will not go with me, here's what Moses was saying, do not bring us up from here. In other words, I think Moses was saying, listen, if I'm the leader and I'm to lead them in the promised land, then I need to know, God, that you are with me. In fact, look at verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other tribe on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. In other words, I'm gonna go with you for you have found favor, or literally in the Hebrew, grace in my sight and I know you by name. And then that famous line, do you remember in 33:18, Moses said, please, Show me your, what? Your glory. Now, we're doing our best to understand what's taking place here. But Moses is talking face to face with God, if you will. And he says, I want you to show me your kavod. You understand what he's saying now? I want you to show me your glory. He's saying to God, I've known you by name, but God, I want to see your nature. I want to see your very essence. Moses is saying, I want you to show me all of you. What a heart. What is he asking for? Show me your glory. Show me all of you, God. I I know you've talked to me and you've spoken to me, but I want to see your glory. What exactly is he requesting? Now, most believe that Moses desired a more complete revelation of God's glory than he had ever seen. Calvin put it this way, that he's wanting a full apprehension of God. Another commentator said what Moses desired to see surpassed all former revelations of the glory of Jehovah. And he had those in Exodus 16 and Exodus 24. And I'll turn you back to those in a moment. But he was even going beyond Jehovah's God talking to him face to face. I think this is what he's saying in essence. Unveil yourself to me, God. I want to see your glory. I want to see your kavod. I want to see your very essence. 
You say, well, what did God do with that request? It's in the text. Look at verse 19. He said, you remember this. Watch the language. I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, what? The Lord. In other words, I'm going to make my goodness and I'm going to proclaim my name, but we know that the name is bound up with the character, especially in and for the Hebrew people. He said, I will be gracious, verse 19, to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy uh, on whom I will show mercy. But remember verse 20? You cannot see my, what? Face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my, what is it? Glory, my kavod passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You say, what's going on here? Well, he's speaking to us we would say anthropomorphically, God is. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean anthropomorphically? He's speaking to us, God. He's speaking to Moses in human terms to communicate to us. I would ask you, does God have a hand? The answer is no. Does God have a face? The answer would be no, because we know from John 4, 24, that God is a what? He's a spirit. So he's accommodating us in language so that we can understand. And so he tells Moses, does God, I'm going to cover you with my hand as my kavod passes by, as my glory passes by. And Moses sees not the face of God, but verse 23, his back. They say, well, what is that? Well, I think the best way to say is it's the afterglow of his glory coming by. And he's accommodating for us in human language, which is an anthropomorphic way so that we can understand. You say, well, what happened? He's going to let his glory, what is that? He's going to pass it by, and I'll let you see the afterglow of my glory. Well, the answer to that is what happened is Exodus 34. Look at it with me in verse 5. There's a fascinating statement. The Lord, okay, descended in the cloud. Now, I'll get onto that in a minute. He's a spirit, but he has manifested himself in the cloud. And it says that he stood with them there. And here's that phrase again, proclaim the name of the Lord. Now watch this. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love with faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, and sin, but who will by no means clear the, the guilty, visiting the iniquity of a fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. What a statement. As God reveals his glory, as we just read, okay, it is a proclamation of his divine, what? Attributes. I, that's what I want you to catch. You see that? To see God's glory is a revelation of his majestic attributes. And so God reveals his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is. It's the name of God, which is the character of God, which is the essence of God. He is the self-existent one. He is the self-sufficient one. He is the God without beginning and the God without end. He is the God without change. That's all in his name. He's never increasing. He's never decreasing. He's dependent on no one. His name then is his character and it's to be seen by a revelation of his divine attributes and what follows as we just read are eight attributes of God. So listen, his glory, what is it? It's his worth. It's his splendor. But what is it? It's his kavod. It's his worth. It's his reputation. But it is the infinite fullness of all that he is. But it is his attributes. And so he's compassionate there. He's gracious. What are those? That's his character. He's slow to what? Anger. He's got a very long fuse instead of people having a short fuse. He's forbearing. He's abounding in loving kindness. That's what Steve preached on this morning. His hesed, his unconditional love. He's a God of truth. He's a God that keeps his loving kindness for a thousand. He forgives iniquity. What is that? An attribute. He's a forgiving God. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. He's a God of justice. Justice who will no, by no means leave the guilty, what? Unpunished. His justice is but a manifestation of his glory. And there's other places in the scriptures that tell us that. So I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on this in my own life. What is it? It's his attributes. It's the infinite fullness of all that he is. Do you see why it's kind of hard to pinpoint? You're, you're trying to pinpoint something that is expressive of all he is. And so when Dr. MacArthur asked that question, I never forgot it, but I thought, that's right. It is a description of who he is, but you can never limit God because everything he is, he is with infinite fullness. Let me just share this with you. God's glory that we find in scripture is intrinsic, okay? Well, I'll explain that. That is... Glory is who God is. He's glorious. If men and angels had never been created, God would still possess intrinsic glory, would he not? In other words, God cannot be God without glory. So listen, I, I, I want to explain this to you. We do not give God his glory. 
we can't take away from his glory. Listen, if no one ever gave God glory, if no one ever praised him, God would still be glorious by virtue of who he is. That's intrinsic glory, okay? Human glory is not intrinsic. Human glory is ascribed to a person from outside of themselves or their being. When I lived in Chicago, I had a friend who had seats on the floor for the Chicago Bulls. Johnny, do you remember that? It it was the second row behind. And so there's Michael Jordan. We'd go, and I played basketball in college, and I just thought, man, he just would barely work up a sweat and drop 35 points. And then there was this guy named Scottie Pippen, and we're just like five feet from him. And then there's this weird guy named Dennis Rodman, okay? But Michael Jordan, that's human glory. And so now if you were to go to that stadium in Chicago, there is the statute of him outside. And I kid you not, when I went to a game, after he had retired, people would come up to that and bow down to that, okay? Now, we glorify people in our world for external success, but that is not intrinsic glory. When we speak of God, his glory is just bound up in who he is. His glory is not derived from an outside source. God's glory is who he is at the core of his being. He is profoundly glorious. Psalm 24 says he's the king of glory, which I I like to say he's the king of kavod, you know, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the what? The glory of God. And and in fact, let me show you that. Would you just look over there in Romans? We probably know it by heart, but you know that statement there when it says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, but I'm in Romans 1.19 for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What has he shown to them? For his invisible attributes, he's talking about these, listen, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without what? His excuse. In other words, general revelation of the creation itself is enough to condemn a man to go to hell. And, and you can read it there. God made it plain to them. God has, verse 19, shown it to them. They, it is, what is it? Is, it is his eternal power, his divine nature. It is God at work revealing himself in the creation of the world. And then I show you this in verse 24, okay? Or excuse me, in verse um, 21. For although they knew God, they did not, what? Honor him as God. They did not doxa him. In the translation, ESV, they did not honor him. They did not glorify him. And so look what happens to them. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts was darkened. You know, it's interesting to me when you think about that phrase, the heavens declare the glory of God. I was in Whitefish, Montana last week and 
I don't know if you've ever been to Montana. It is just beautiful. I mean, it's almost like you don't need to travel across the globe. Just go to Montana. And so my wife, I was preaching in Augusta and preaching in Bozeman, but we stopped at this place called Whitefish, Whitefish, Montana. And so we're always just going on walks and all that stuff. And so we got to Whitefish Lake and I pulled in and there's nobody there. It's October. The leaves are changing. There's snow already on the mountains. I mean, it is just the most majestic thing. The water, there's no wind in the air. And so the water is just, just straight. It's just stunning, gorgeous. The heavens declare the what? the glory of God, the worth of God, the the reputation of God. He made it all just by the breath of his mouth. And so as I noticed there, the guy, another guy pulls right in next to us. And he pull, I see his car walking and he's got all these contraptions on his car. He's got a kayak on the top and then we're walking and he's pulling fish nets out and he's pulling tackle out. He's pulling uh, rods out. I mean, he had like a, a virtual Cabela's in his back car, you know. And so as we're getting ready to leave, we come up to the guy, probably in his 70s. And uh, we, my wife says, what a beautiful day. And I said, yeah, it's a beautiful day. He goes, yeah, it's a great day out here on the lake. And my wife uh, is always ever the witness. She says, you know, you just look at all of this design. It demands a designer, something like that. Like just, you can see the handiwork of all of this. And the guy says, well, I don't know about that. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't maybe as edgy as that, but he did say it that way. I'm not so sure about that. And so we just kept going, and my wife said a few other things, and I said a few other things, and I found out uh, that he is a PhD. He has spent his life studying plant life and animal life and fish, okay? And so we can just tell, I said, I'm preaching in Bozeman on Sunday. I'd love to have you. But I, I got to tell you, I drove away and I'm thinking he's a retired research professor who's a PhD and he's never seen God in the whole thing. So I I thought, although verse 21, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They, they did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened. Listen, when you think of his glory, he is the king of glory in Psalm 24. Now, the emphasis in scripture regarding the glory of God is the visible manifestation of that glory in our world. Now, he's not only revealed himself in creation, which is enough to condemn a man, but we also know it's not enough to save a man because Romans 10 says, how will they hear without a what? Preacher, how will they hear unless somebody preaches the good news? How blessed is the one who brings the good tidings? And so general revelation can condemn a man, but we need special revelation. What's interesting about God's glory though, and I'm, I'm trying to get a little closer with you, um, is in scripture, the emphasis in scripture is the visible manifestation of that glory in our world. So here's the second question. How does God manifest this glory? Okay. Well, he does often in scripture in a visible manifestation. Okay. And the Jews 
Jewish people had a word for this visible manifestation of God. It was called Shekinah, Shekinah. And what that meant, it is the visible manifestation of God's glory is the Shekinah presence of God. And throughout the scriptures, whenever God wanted to reveal himself, he did so through a brilliant light. And that light is called Shekinah. And the Hebrew term or word means to dwell. And it means to reside with. And what I want you to do is I want to track this with you in Old and New Testaments for a moment on the glory of God's presence with his people or his dwelling with people. First, that revelation of God and his glory was in the garden. Do you remember after Genesis 3, when man had sinned, they heard, you're you're trying to, okay, what, what? They heard the voice of the Lord God. What was he doing? Walking in the cool, or in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, God doesn't have legs. He's a, he's a spirit, so he's, he's manifesting himself, right? They heard God approaching. It was a manifestation of God. It was a way for them to know after their sin that God was approaching. And so he's manifesting himself in a presence, if you will. So God revealed himself in a light moving through the garden in chapter 3, 8. It said that Adam and his wife hid themselves. Do you remember what it says? From the what? The presence of the Lord. In other words, he's a spirit, but he's making himself known. And that presence is the Shekinah glory of God. And it says there that God was among the trees of the garden. What is that Shekinah? It's a visible manifestation of God's glory. What was it? The Shekinah was like a cloud-like, brilliant light that represented the presence of God. Just like when he said, Moses, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. And he said, I need you. So God said, I'm going to let my presence go with you. And then he revealed himself in the cleft of the rock. What was it? It was God revealing himself and showing himself in his attributes in this glorious Shekinah light. But secondly, it was revealed, God's revelation of his glory, in the wilderness wanderings, which is what we spoke about. In Exodus, God's presence, the Shekinah, went with his people as he led them out of Egypt. It was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what? fire by night. In fact, look in your Bible in Exodus 16. Let me show you this. Exodus 16. You remember there as they, Moses is there and they've just gotten through the Red Sea and they just set out from that red experience and the Lord gave them a sign in 16.7. In the morning, you shall see what? the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord for what are we that you grumble against us? He, he says to him, you're going to see it. You're going to see his kavod. You're, you're going to see his glory. 
Look down at chapter 16, verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory, the kavod of the Lord appeared in the, what? In the cloud. You imagine that? You imagine complaining in your home and a glory cloud comes from the grumbling and complaining? And, and you, you say, well, Scott, what is this cloud? Well, I just think it must have been, it's massive. It must have been bright because in 1321, it's seen at night. But the glory of the Lord was a visible manifestation of his presence in the cloud. In other words, God is present and he's provider for them. It was mobile because we know that it moved. We also know that sometimes that cloud stopped and sometimes it stopped for a day and sometimes it stopped for a year. But here is this glory. It's in his revelation in the garden. His glory is revealed in the wilderness wanderings. Thirdly, his revelation of his glory is revealed in the giving of the law, which you look over just a few chapters as he gives the law in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai. And I just, I'm exposing this. I'm, I'm purposely not being as practical today, but I want you to understand it as best as we can. In 1910, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for on the third day, for on that third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. In other words, he's going to come down. Well, how's he going to come down? He's going to come down in his presence. Well, how did he do that? Look down at verse 16 of chapter 19. He says, on the morning of that third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in what? Fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered in thunder. What a, what a picture there. Verse 20, it says, the Lord came down on the mountain to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Mo- Moses, remember that, to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. What is this cloud? It's his glory. It's his presence. We know from 19.9 that the cloud was dense. We know from Exodus 19.18, it was like smoke from a furnace It produced thunder. It produced lightning. And at night, that cloud looked like fire. Look over in Exodus 24 just for a moment as they're receiving the law. In Exodus 24, you see that all in in verses 9 through 18, but I take you to, to verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, 24, 15, and the cloud covered the mountain. And verse 16, the glory of the Lord, what? 
It dwelt on the mountain. What is it? It's his kavod. It's his presence. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst, it says, of the cloud. What a, what a picture here. And then it says in verse 17, now the appearance of the kavod, of the glory of the Lord, was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And so on the one hand, it's a brilliant presence. God is with his people. On the other hand, as he revealed himself, it, it was revealed in thunder and lightning and the people trembled and, they, and when it descended, they were, they were very much afraid. But he would speak to them from that glory cloud. And Moses reiterates that in Deuteronomy 5, 23 through 27. You can see that layer. Look over to Exodus chapter 29 in verse 42. You see it there again in the giving of the law in 42, 29, 42. It says, and it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting at the altar and Aaron and his sons. And I will consecrate, uh, I will consecrate to serve me as priest. Look at 45. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. So God's revelation of his glory is seen in the giving of the law when God was speaking to his people. But it's revealed again, you remember, that God's glory was in the tabernacle. And again, it was the cloud in a powerful manifestation of the character of God. Go to the end of Exodus. The end of Exodus in chapter 40. A wonderful section there when... His glory was revealed in the tabernacle. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What is it? It's the presence of God. It is the kavod of God. It is the attributes of God. And just as it passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock, he is descending and revealing himself in this glory cloud. And I love that. In verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it. It was a picture that God was with his people. And it says in 35 that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and through Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What a picture there. What is it? It's his presence. It's his character. It's the revelation that God is with his people. But as you move on, that cloud was also, I'd say fifthly, if you're taking notes, revealed in judgment to those who disobeyed the leaders of Israel. Look over in Numbers, okay? In Numbers chapter 14, they were complaining 
about Moses. And they were complaining about his leadership. In fact, in chapter 14, verse 1, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died even in the wilderness. They're grumbling, are they not? Say, well, what happened? Look at 14.10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. I love this. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. I always thought, wouldn't that be cool if somebody was arguing with church leadership and the glory just came in? I mean, just imagine and stone these guys and somehow this cloud the presence of God comes in. He's revealing himself to us. And, and look down at chapter 14 in verse 22. None of the men who have seen my, what does it say? Glory. Do you remember in the book of Romans when he's talking about the Jewish people, they had the law, they had the prophets, and they have seen my, what? Glory. That's a privilege only the Jewish people had. And they forfeited that privilege and it it speaks of the judgment against him. But he said, none of those men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and all the wilderness and have put me to test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. Verse 23, they shall not see the land that I swore to give to their forefathers. And so here they didn't obey God. Look, it too bad it didn't finish. I wish it would have. Look over at chapter 16. You remember that? The sons of Korah or Korah and the son of Izar and then all the sons that are mentioned there. It says in 16.2 of Numbers, they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone too far for in all the congregation, for all in the congregation, are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above this assembly? In other words, who, who said you're the boss? Who said you have this unique calling? But you remember what happened. Look down at verse 19 of chapter 16. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and then the glory of the Lord appeared Uh, to all the congregation. And what happened? You remember, they were swallowed. God was with his people. Well, what was it? It's his glory. It's his kavod. He's with his people. And he's manifesting his presence even in the midst of insurrection. It was a visible manifestation that protected God's honor and God's reputation. You see that in another place where his glory is revealed in the temple number six in Second Chronicles 5, 2 Chronicles 7. It just says that the glory of the Lord filled the house. The glory of the Lord filled the house. What was it? It's his presence. He's, he's accommodating himself. They worshiped and put their faces on the ground and gave praise to God. But you know, and oh, how sad. This is not, it even gets worse. Because you remember, and I'll just allude to it, in Ezekiel 1, uh, he had the glorious vision of God in brilliant splendor and color. 
But as you keep going in, in Ezekiel, Israel worshiped idols in Ezekiel chapter 8. And then in Ezekiel chapter 9, God's glory, his kavod, it says, begin to move. It began to move to the threshold of the temple. Then in chapter 10, that glory cloud went over and departed to the doorway. And then after it went to the doorway, it departed to the courtyard. And then you finally get there in 1122 that the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And then the glory of God from that nation, what? It just departed. And across that temple was written, what? Ichabod. And what does Ichabod mean? The glory was departed. And it's just so sad when you read the Old Testament. They were given the glory. They were given the presence of God. They were given the kavod of God. And when you finally get there in the book of Ezekiel, it departed altogether and it departed for hundreds of years. And you say, did the glory ever come back? And the answer is what? Yes, it came back in who? It came back in Jesus. Steve quoted for us this morning, the word became flesh. You remember, and it dwelt. It tabernacled among us. Same word. Just as God dwelt with the people in the Old Testament with this glory cloud. I love that phrase. The word became flesh and it literally dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his, what? His glory the glory came back. It came back in the flesh, in the person of Christ. It was glory. Do you remember what John said is the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Now we both know that Christ's glory was veiled in his first coming, wasn't it? Except for one possible time at the Mount of what? Transfiguration. So what happened there? I think he just peeled back his flesh And Jesus Christ showed them his glory. It says in Matthew 17 that he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. He just gave them, if you will, a show of his pre-incarnate glory with the Father. Jesus, you know this, was the visible manifestation of God's glory in human flesh. Amen. In fact, it says this in Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his what? His nature. When you see Jesus Christ, you see God, the what? The Father. In other words, he said to one of his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. Listen, it's hard for us even to humanly think about that. I'm talking to you about the kavod of God, the character of God. And you recognize in Hebrews, the writer says that he's the radiance and the exact icon, the exact representation of his nature. And if that's not enough, 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul said there that none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And in the New Testament, the word's doxa, but they would not have crucified the Lord of kavod. You might be asking, where is the glory of God manifesting itself today? I mean, we know that Christ 
died on the cross for our sins, did he not? Is that not precious? The Lord of glory died for you. God died for you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just the gospel. And then, of course, he was raised. And then, of course, he spent many different days on this earth in the book of Acts revealing himself. And then he ascended into what? Glory. And you say, does he still reveal himself today? And the answer would be what? Yes. His glory is now seen in the what? The church. Now, I know a lot of people discount that. I mean, is glory seen in the church? Oh, yeah. (laughs) To him... God be the glory in the what? In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. His glory is revealed today corporately in the church. His glory is revealed individually in our own lives that the light shall shine out of the darkness as the one who is shown in our what? Hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure in a what? in an earthen vessel. Do you realize if you're here in the Central Valley and you're from Bakersfield, okay? Some of, one of them's from Texas, right? He flew in with his daughter. Is that God's put his glory in earthen vessels. He's put it in clay pots. He uses frail human beings. And in that frailness and in that weakness, God's power is put on display. And the church corporately, the church individually becomes the very presence of God in the world in this sense that we become reflectors and we become mirrors of Christ to a lost world. It's Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. But praise be to God, that's not the end of it. When he comes back at his second coming, he will come back on the clouds, it says, of heaven with great power and great what? Glory. He's going to reveal himself in Matthew 24. In fact, even beyond into the millennium, in in Revelation 21, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. So this is a wonderful theme for scripture. And you see that in the book of Isaiah in chapter one. So in the eternal state after Christ's rule on the earth, the glory of God will take the place of the sun and the moon as the sources of light. But until that day, okay, you need to live in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Now, while we cannot add anything to God's intrinsic glory, our lives can reflect his glory and magnify it in other people's comprehension. And that's how you glorify God. You say, if that's a little bit of a description of his glory, then... What does that mean to glorify God? That's the verb, right? Listen, it's beyond time, but it certainly means this, to praise him, right? To worship him, 
To give him glory is to praise the splendor of his majesty, the splendor of his glory. It's to honor him. It's to make God glorious. He is glorious, but you're reflecting, if you will, his glory made in the image you, the imago Dei, in the image of God to be a reflector back to a lost world. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. And then he came right back and said, you are the what? The light of the world. You and you alone is the thought or the light of the world. And the only way that you're gonna be light, at least in that text, is your deeds. There it is again where it says, let them see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we are made, Piper said, to be prisms reflecting the light of God's glory into all of light. Now, now what's amazing about that is you understand that sometimes theologians try to classify the attributes and they have different ways to classify them, but the one that I kind of grew up with and I think it works is the communicable and the what? the incommunicable attributes. And I always thought, boy, that sounds like some kind of, uh, like a disease, like you, you know, I, I don't, but it's just the way the communicable are the attributes that we can live out, right? The incommunicable attributes are the ones that are God's only. Now, obviously God is so far above us, but the incommunicable attributes are his omniscience. We'll never be knowing all things. Omnipresence omnipotence. Those are incommunicable. Those are God's attributes that we can't share, but there's attributes that you can share. Can you exhibit love? Absolutely. God is love. You can exhibit love. God in his character is a God of forgiveness. Can you exhibit forgiveness? Absolutely. God is a God. We talked last night, I did, of grace You're to extend grace to others. God, amazingly, when we think of the attributes, is holy, but are you called to be holy? Yes, and so we glorify God when our lives conform to the life of Jesus Christ. You know, last week in Whitefish, I, uh, you you know, you, you wanna be available and just pray, Lord, I, I, I'm here, I, I, I want to honor you, I want my life to count, so we're walking in whitefish, and um, I pulled around the corner, and there's a bench there, and a guy's sitting on the bench, and he's got a sleeping bag, and he's got a stick next to him, he's got a backpack down by his feet, so I pull around the corner, and my wife is just right behind me, and he looked me in the eyes, and I looked him in the eyes, I said, how's it going? And uh, he said, good, good. And I obviously knew that this man was, you know, you just understand when you look at sometimes people without judging, he's homeless. And so I'm talking to him and he smells like alcohol. So I just thought, I'm not gonna waste my time. I said, what's your name? And he gave me a fake name and he laughed. I said, what's your real name? He says, Andrew. And I said, Andrew, do you have any background with the scripture. And I kid you not, this within 30 seconds. I'm not gonna waste my time, right? I'm gonna, let's get to the point here. And as soon as I said with the scripture, he went like this. He went, and he lifted up his neck and he had a, it was okay, but he had a tattoo 
of the Apostle Paul's prayer in Colossians 1 tattooed on his neck. And I said, Andrew, not only do you know the Bible, it's tattooed on your neck. And so we begin to talk to him, and I thought, it's a little inconsistent. He's got this scripture on his neck, but I could smell the alcohol. I didn't think he was on drugs at that point. I said, Andrew, how can we help you? He's, oh, I'm trying to get into pathways here, and it's a clinic, and, and my wife's sharing with him and um, telling him about his guilt and how Jesus can take all of his guilt away. And it's a tragic case. We don't know all people's, so, but I'm telling you, I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, this guy's made in the image of God, isn't he? You're, you're, we're not above him, we're made in the image, and there go we, but by the grace of God, right? He said, oh, Scott, my, uh, my dad committed suicide. I don't think he was lying. I said, have you talked to your mom lately? He goes, yeah, I talk to my mom sometimes. I said, what's her phone number? And I pulled my cell phone out. And I just, okay, say, Andrew, we're gonna call her. So I called Arlene in Texas. And I can just hear her heart just sad for her son probably 20 years of this, just being back and forth. But I, I say all that because in the midst of him having the, the tattoo of Paul's prayer, and I won't tell you, but across his forehead, he had a filthy statement right in his forehead. And I thought, wow, this is, he's got scripture on his neck and then he's blaspheming on his forehead. So my wife says, do you have a Bible? And, and he reaches down to his backpack. I was watching him careful at that point. And you know what he pulled out of his backpack? A Bible. I said, Andrew, it's on your head and it's in your back, or on your neck and it's in your backpack. And, but I thought to myself, that's inconsistent, isn't it? And, and somewhere in this man's life, by the way, he's at 40, I asked him, talked to his mom, we became, we became friends, you know. He, there's an inconsistency there, because he, an inconsistency because let your light so shine before men that they may glorify God by seeing your good deeds, or they, they see your good deeds and therefore glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I thought there's a disconnect there. And I wonder if there's a disconnect in our life. Look at, look at at times all that we know. But make it your prayer. Here's his glory. It's a revelation of his character. You're called, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the what? The glory of God. And you say, well, why did he mention eating and drinking? He mentioned eating and drinking, not because they're profound. He mentioned eating and drinking because they're the most mundane things you do. In other words, listen, you glorify God even in your eating and drinking, but whatever you do, do all for the what? The glory of God. Your life and my life needs to be consistent with the revealed will of God because we're the salt left in the world. And in fact, if we're just taking the words of Jesus, you are the salt, you alone are the salt. You are the light of the world and you alone are the light of the world. And so God has made us in such a way that 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 image was marred by sin, but it's restored in Christ through the new birth. And we're now as a life to make sure that our lives ever exist to, I'm going to say it this way, honor him and to praise him and to glorify him and to obey him and to esteem him with all of our life. That's solely 
Deo, glory. To him be the glory, right? Amen? He's the one that it all resides in. And so when you put all those solas in perspective, it's all about God, is it not? Salvacious. Do you remember the salvation passage in Ephesians 1, 6, 1, 12, 1, 14? That the Father saved you to the praise of his what? His glory. You exist for that reason. Then the Son redeemed you, it says in 12, to the praise of his glory. Father, Son. And then verse 14, the Holy Spirit sealed you to the praise of his what? That's your purpose in life. You live for that glory. The chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And as Steve said earlier, all glory belongs to God, not to us, but God is glorified as we mirror his character in all of life. When we bear fruit, you bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And in that, God is glorified. So listen, salvation is by grace alone, right? He gets all the glory. It's salvation by faith alone. He gets all the glory because the faith he gave you is a gift. So you have to respond. I have to respond. But it's faith alone because you're looking to him. It's by Christ alone that all the glory goes to what? God alone. So it says in Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the one the glory. Pray with me as we close our conference in just a moment. As your head is bowed, listen, you're looking for purpose. It's right here. He made you in his image. He made you in the Imago day that was, of course, marred in the garden. And in Adam's sin, the whole world fell into sin. And the only way that can be reversed is by the grace of God in Christ alone, through faith alone, to be born again by him, and then to make it the aim of your life, to make it the goal of your life, that you don't exist for yourself, that you don't exist to to make your name famous, you exist to make God famous. He already is intrinsically, but oh, we can glorify him and praise him for who he is. Is there any inconsistency in your life that you just need to bring to the foot of the cross? Do so now. Maybe there's somebody you need to share the good news with. Maybe there's a good deed in the sense that it's our good deeds that reveal the Father. Obviously, they don't save us. They glorify him. And of course, the Pharisees in the next chapter, chapter six, did everything to be seen by men. It's not that we do our good deeds to be seen by men. We do our good deeds that it would reveal the Father and glorify him. Listen, his glory is intrinsic, but we've been given the opportunity to praise him. If he's opened your heart to the truth, then every day we live, we should praise him. Every day you should wake up. It's a day that you ought to give to his glory and his honor and not to yourself. If you're in a business, you make your business to the glory of God. If you're a mom, you make it to raise your children to the glory of God. If you're a single, you live your life to the fullest for the glory of God. If you're a pastor, it's never about you. It's about his kingdom. It's about his glory. It's about him being seen. Father, I would pray, would you help us and enable us to live this truth out that, Father, your glory is intrinsically yours, but would you enable us by the power of your spirit to reflect you back to a dark world, 
that needs the light into a decaying world that needs salt as a preservative and you've made us that. Lord, we love you. Thank you again just finally for the finished work of Christ that where we fall short, he never has. Thank you, but may it be that our lives become mirrors and a prism reflecting your glory to this lost world, we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.